I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Provider Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about the impact of technology and innovation in the practice of law. Today's guest is Federal Magistrate Judge Tony Leone from the Minnesota District Court. He and I talk about some of the do's and don'ts of video for court hearings. He talks about where it's working, where it can be a little more difficult than in-person hearings, and why access to internet might also be an access to justice issue. If you've listened to a few of these podcasts, you know the show's angle is how technology can be used in legal and how it's impacting and innovating in the practice of law. We've had some great guests, people that have started software companies, lawyers from both in-house and law firms that are using tech and innovation to deliver value for their clients. And we've had other guests, other important members of the legal ecosystem, like analysts and project managers, who are also key to improving the delivery of legal services. In most of these episodes, it's often the case that the guest made a conscious decision to use technology or software in a legal practice, or they had a desire to innovate because they just knew there was a better way of getting something done. All of this stuff is super exciting, and I like to geek out on it. In fact, that's why I started this podcast. But as evidenced by today's episode, sometimes the legal industry finally just catches up with tech. Or we figure out that as a matter of doing business with others, we need to work like they do and use the tools they do. Email comes to mind here. Even though many other businesses started using email as the preferred method of communications in the mid to late 90s, it took a couple of years for law to catch on. We were still enamored by fax machines and snail mail. In today's episode, we are talking about the use of video conferencing in courts with Magistrate Judge Tony Leung from the United States District Court for the District of Minnesota. Now, admittedly, the use of video conferencing technology for court hearings was expedited by necessity because of the pandemic. But at some point, I feel that legal would have gotten there and started using video more often. Video is a good example of technology that was being used often in other industries, but just wasn't too prevalent in legal. But now, because we have to, the legal industry is using it like everybody else. And sometimes people in the legal industry are actually seeing the value in video conferencing. Kind of like the first time a lawyer sent an email to a client and realized it was a whole lot easier than typing, printing, and sending an email. Like email, I have a hunch for certain activities, video is here to stay. So, if it's going to stick around, who better to talk about it than a judge? so we can get some do's and don'ts and learn about the effectiveness of video in courts in general. Now, today's guest, as I mentioned, is Judge Tony Leung. He and I, of course, talked on Zoom about Zoom. That only makes sense, right? Judge Leung is a pretty impressive guy. He immigrated to the United States from Hong Kong at a very young age and went from valedictorian of his high school class to become the first Asian-American judge in Minnesota at both the state and federal levels. You moved to the United States when you're six years old. Uh, initially here near Chicago, Aurora, but you end up in Minneapolis. What brought you and your family to the United States? Well, at the time, it was 1966, and if you were up on, um, you know, keeping eyes on the international news, China was a very different place back then from what it is today. China at, at that time was in the midst of a cultural revolution, which brought real chaos between um very powerful uh, segments of Chinese society, what I would call the traditional Maoists who wanted the traditional uh, revolutionary ideals to be pursued in the way that they thought uh, versus what I would call more of the, um, the states, the government, and the, what I would call more the uh, practical factions of the Chinese government. And really, it created chaos all over the country. And my parents, um, who left China after uh, the communists took over, 
they uh, immigrated to Hong Kong, but of course, Hong Kong was a <laughs> was just a colony. So I always like to say, um, I was born a citizen of nowhere, but a subject of the crown, which is something that's very important to me now that I conduct the naturalization ceremonies. Because in essence, you know, one of the things we say is, you know, you give up any loyalties to any, you know, crown or potentate and a bunch of other titles that big words that I haven't heard of before. And, you know, that is very meaningful. So they knew that if push came to shove, the British government wasn't going to go and stand in the way of China eventually. So th- my parents thought it would, in the long run, it would be much better for the kids to come over here. And so my father actually left Hong Kong when he was about 48 years old, gave up his uh, tailoring business of Western suits and came here and became a cook. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So he, d- he did not keep pursuing the tailor? No. Because when we came here, um, there was really no employment for my uh, parents. And so we had a distant relative up in uh, the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, who was a head chef at a a big Chinese restaurant there uh, back then called the Nankin. And that relative got my dad a job up here. And so that's how we ended up in Minneapolis. You know, just basically where you grew up, your formative years, school, high school. Yeah, um, every uh, I'm a Minnesotan all the way through, except for um, college and law school and, you know, some visits overseas, I guess. And then college, speaking of which, you went to Yale for undergrad. Is that right? I did. I went to Yale undergrad and graduated in 82. And um, uh, it was an excellent uh, education and obviously life-changing experience for me. Did I read this right? When you were at Yale, you were the co-captain or the captain of the Taekwondo club? Yes, I was. Um, and uh, yeah, back then it was actually quite interesting. In your tournaments, it was all co- it was full contact tournaments. Oh, wow. And there were the only rules were uh, you couldn't strike below the waist. And also um, they didn't want uh, punches to the head. But if you wanted to kick someone in the head, you could. <laughs> um, and the reason was uh, they didn't want it to turn into a boxing match or something like that. And so, yeah, it was actually quite fun. And um, I spent a lot of hours in the gym back then. Do, do you still uh, do any Taekwondo? You know, I stretch a little bit and uh, that's about it. And my son actually does quite a bit. And um, he he's at uh, Yale too. Um, and so... Uh, he's on the uh, taking Taekwondo. Well, he's not at school right now during COVID. He's taking a semester off, but uh, he does it as well. Do you ever let that fact slip in the middle of a discovery dispute between two lawyers that's getting on your last nerve that you, you know Taekwondo? No, Chad. You know, there's <laughs> one thing I learned a long time ago. I am uh, a classic Southern Chinese person. I am not like about to dunk a basketball anytime <laughs> soon. I'm, my my height is a real challenge, and so I've all along learned. You, know, you always go with the person who's bigger, who's in shape, who knows what they're doing. So I, I I try to avoid those as much as possible. Fair enough. Fair enough. I just thought, hey, let it slip every once in a while. You know, try to let them know that you, you've right. got that background. So after Yale. Law school, NYU, right? Yep, law school. And um, in law school, I um, really ended up, uh, you know, I I was attracted to uh, NYU and also um, other schools because they, by reputation, they were very progressive and so forth. It was interesting. Once I got to NYU, their tax program and their, what I call their business, really like corporate contracts uh, programs were really, really strong. 
And so over time, actually, I developed a little more interest in that. And um, in fact, then when I graduated from uh, law school, I um, joined a um, you know relatively big, well, actually one of the biggest firms here. Which is uh, Fag- now Fagery Drinker, right? Yeah, now Fagery Drinker. So you went straight from New York, uh, NYU to Fagery. You went straight to big law. That's right. And then I actually was in... Um, Technically, I was in the real estate department of Fagri, but I did basically all transactional work. Basically, if you're you want to buy or sell anything, I'll, I'll help you. And um, you know, the only thing I don't do is securities-based um, acquisitions. And uh, to the chagrin and fear of some of our fellow partners, sometimes I got dragged into. <laughs> Some other areas like family law. Oh, wow. Which some of the other partners was, what are you doing? <laughs> you just learning. It's curiosity. So how long were you at the firm then? I was there about uh, eight, nine years and uh, became an equity partner there. And um, it was sort of a significant time right around the time I um, was. I learned that if I applied for the bench, I you know, be seriously considered. Were you thinking about that? I mean, as you went to law school, as you're growing up, did you think, hey, one day I might want to become a judge? Ironically, no. Uh, in fact, I didn't actually want to go to law school initially. I was going to do U.S. Uh, Sino relations, maybe work, you know, State Department, Foreign Service type of work. But I spent a, a summer in 1981 that was really eye-opening. Uh, 1981 in China was very different. I was at Peking University. And after that summer there, while I loved the country and loved the people, I thought it would be very difficult to spend a career at that time working with um, uh, heavy bureaucracy. And um, I just thought it'd be frustrating. I always joke that had I followed that career path, I would probably be a billionaire by now. Because <laughs> obviously, China has progressed in ways that are really sort of unimaginable if you had the experience of seeing what China was before. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So you apply to become a judge. You become a judge. You were the first Asian American judge in Minnesota. Is that right? And, and feder- at the federal level, too, in, in Minnesota. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, that was actually one of the factors that went into my decision uh, whether to, in essence, change careers, even though it's all law-related. It really is a change of career because, you know, the path of an equity partner in a you know big law firm, I think now it's the largest uh, law firm in Minnesota. And, um, you know, it's a big uh, career change. And especially at that time when I had to make the decision, our firm were uh, really the lead counsel in the Exxon Valdez case up in Alaska. And we had um, won the $1 billion damages award and a $4 billion uh, punitive damage award. And so it really was a decision, you know, I had to make that, okay, you know, what's the place of money versus, you know, pursuing suing something that you may not otherwise get a chance to pursue. And so I went with that. And this is uh, mid-90s, you're at state court? Early 90s, Early 90s. Uh, 94, yeah. So When you took the bench at the state, were you doing civil and criminal, one or just the other? Or In the state bench, it's a general jurisdiction trial judge, so literally it's everything. So we did anything from uh, juvenile delinquency, which is basically minors uh, committing crimes, or juvenile child protection, which is, as it sounds, basically people have kids but can't really raise them. 
And uh, also we did uh, mental health work. We did criminal matters. We did anything from traffic tickets to multiple murders, civil cases. We did things from car accidents to um, mass tort, you know, um, and um, some civil litigation that literally when you're, you know, some involved, uh, you know, just immense um, issues. Um, I remember one especially where, our settlement conference, I couldn't, and in state court, we do our own settlement conferences. I remember uh, there was one case where it was almost impossible to get a time that made sense for anybody because literally all the players were throughout the world. I mean, there were representatives on almost every continent other than, I believe it was um, other than Antarctica. And this was before Zoom. So did people participate in person? They call in? Or? Phone, conference call. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you're at state court for how many years? 17. And then what was the impetus for you to, to, to jump to the federal bench? Well, I, in state court, I was uh, very fortunate. I thought I just did so many interesting cases over time. And as I just went through, it covered the gamut of all the disputes that human beings experience in life. And so after doing something for 17 years, I thought, you know, it'd be sort of cool to do something else. and um, the federal courts were always fascinating to me. And uh, frankly, I wasn't that familiar with federal courts. But, you know, over time, then I uh, did uh, put my name in and I was fortunate enough to be um, selected by, you know, the um, vote of the sitting district judges of our um, district. And that was in 2011. You were in the real estate department of Fegre. How much time did you really spend in court before you went to the judiciary? I thought I was afraid you'd ask that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just curious. I did. It just now just, came to me. Just remember, before I answer that, I want you to remember. Actually, I think I'm a pretty good judge. I mean, I, I don't think they like put me on the federal bench if you know if I <laughs> totally screwed everything up. No, what happened? Was I had been in a courtroom for 15 minutes before I became a trial judge, sitting behind the bench doing jury trials. But but the, but the fact that you were able to hear all those kinds of cases in your role as a state court judge. I mean, that's more experience than most attorneys are going to have as far as different rules, different yeah. types of questions of law. So, well, the first time, you know, you know I always um, um, kid around and say, well, it isn't that hard being a, a judge. You know, it's like most of the time it's 50, you got a 50% chance anyways, you know, sustained, overruled, yep. grant, deny. And then um, if you know a little bit about the law, you should hit 75. <laughs> and if you know a little bit more, you should hit 90s. And that sounds pretty good. So what, what would you say are the biggest differences that, the, uh, between being a state court judge and a federal court judge? What, what really made you say, wow, this is different when you got to the federal level? The first thing I, I sense was, you know, you just have to be very careful just at the very beginning. You always have to ask jurisdiction. You know, obviously, we asked jurisdiction questions in state court, but because it was a general jurisdiction court, you know, it, we really didn't get into that many sticky wickets with respect to that. But in the federal courts, we have to be very careful about that. So, you know, procedurally, uh, that's one of the first things that uh, come to mind. And also in terms of um, how to commence lawsuits in, um, uh, in Minnesota, the state court has what we call these pocket service, you know, where you don't actually have to file the lawsuit to get it going by service. And so that was a very different system of, you know, when technically things get rolling in a case. 
you know, and so I think that was another aspect of um, the fact of the duties of a uh, magistrate judge, of course, are much more limited than a general jurisdiction trial judge in state court. For example, I cannot constitutionally do criminal trials, uh, nor do uh, criminal sentencings. But with consent and so forth, I can do, um, you know, basically uh, everything else, including um, civil uh, jury trials. And um, so that is quite different from the uh, broader jurisdiction of a um, uh, trial judge in the state court side. I would also think, um, as a general matter, I think the cases in federal court have a little, maybe a higher level of complexity. Whereas we did, uh, you know, I've had some very complex cases uh, in the state court, but they were more uh, few and far between. Whereas in federal court, there's just a lot more heavy duty cases that we got to deal with. So, yeah, I think those are some of the um, main differences that I see. So we're here today to talk about Zoom and your experience with it since the outbreak of COVID. Are you handling all your hearings via Zoom? Are there any in-person hearings that you've had? I basically have been functioning almost entirely virtually since March 16. The only exception to that has been um, some uh, criminal cases where the defendant has not consented to a uh, video hearing, in which case there's actually we get them done, but it's uh, actually quite a um, uh, procedure that we undergo. Uh, for example, um, we have to um, coordinate the transportation from the um, detention facility to the courthouse. You have to take this measures that are, you know, COVID measures that are required in that. And remember, when we take them out of the detention facility, when they go back in, they have to quarantine too. And so that creates some real um, sp- space issues um, and um, other uh, uh, challenges to uh, both the uh, marshals as well as the uh, detention facilities. Then when they get here, of course, uh, we have to have a very um, well-regulated courtroom proceeding where we have invested tremendously in uh, plexiglass. (laughs) I always say, if, if you would have invested in plexiglass in in virtual technology and masks I, and, and, uh, and hand sanitizers, uh, we, we, you would have made a mint. <laughs> but uh, there is quite a procedure. I mean, we, in the courtroom, for example, we'll have gloves, we'll have um, you know, coverings that are disposable for the mics that people use. Uh, we have hand sanitizer. Um, we have wipes that a- after the hearing, uh, counsel is responsible for wiping down their respective spaces, as am I and my staff as, you know, after our hearings. And we have masks that are available as well uh, in case people have gotten them. So, yeah, it, it's complicated, but it's been very well thought out, and I think it works quite well. Once I get into the courtroom, I encourage people to keep their masks on when they're in the courtroom still. And it's only when they it's their turn to speak that I ask them to uh, take off their mask and then after they're done, put it on. And in the past, of course, our uh, protocol here has been you go to the center podium to address the court. And so we found uh, that we don't want to do that. And so we actually will just ask the uh, lawyers to use the mics on the council table 
And again, each of them has a, um, re, uh, a disposable mic cover so that they can take that on and off. You mentioned this is for the criminal stuff. So, and obviously this is not exact science. In a week, what's your case like? How, how much is settlement conference? How much are disc- motions? How much are other types of hearings? Our district is very unique. Um, our magistrate judges focus a lot on settlement conferences. And I would say that, I boy, I guess... Um, a rough split of work, and this isn't very scientific, but my my sense is it's about like 20% criminal and 80% uh, civil is my caseload. And of my civil caseload, um, I usually schedule at least three uh, settlement conferences a week. But in reality, what happens when you schedule them, you know, I schedule them well in advance. Many of them go away by themselves. I just, it's just hard to tell exactly which one, you know? And so um, if one goes away, I'll, you know, substitute another case for that if there's enough time. Most of my time is actually spent um, uh, in settlement uh, discussions. And I think our district, all of us are actually <laughs> quite proficient at settling cases here. But, but you do have a motion calendar too, related to civil. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. The motion calendars, oh, I could be mistaken, but I don't recall one. I haven't had one civil motion in person since, again, March 16. I think the key to those uh, motions is that uh, they really, the lawyers really have to line up their exhibits in advance so that they can you know, easily reference them. And same thing with the in-person in um, criminal hearings. Uh, one of the keys is for the lawyers uh, to identify in advance pre-mark their exhibits, exchange them, or at least make them available so that, you know, we can show them to each other digitally in the courtroom uh, when we're ready to go. When we come back, Judge Leung talks about why the lack of internet for some adds to access to justice issues. He also talks about some best practices for video court hearings, including why it's a good thing to get out of bed before appearing in front of a judge. We'll get back to my conversation with the judge in just a second. But before that, as I always do, I want to encourage you to visit tlpodcast.com where we have a dedicated page for every episode. It's got show notes, more information about the guests, and links to some of the stuff they talked about. You can also sign up for our email list there so you know when episodes come out. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And if you like us enough, I hope you give us a thumbs up there in the review section. Finally, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Now let's get back to my conversation with Judge Leung. Vast majority of hearings have been via video conference. What has been the most surprising thing to you that that's a positive? That hey, you know, I didn't expect this to work this well. What what aspect? I would say that what I'd call the insouciant ease that we transformed in court hearings into virtual hearings, and to keep the docket going, I think that has actually been one of the real pluses. I, I have to admit uh, that before COVID-19 hit, I wasn't too inclined to learn too much about technology. I won't say I'm exactly the uh, number one pick in our district for leading a tech commu- uh, committee, far from it. But I think I've got, uh, got it down well enough that uh, I can hold my own uh, conducting virtual court. So that has been a very pleasant outcome. The other aspect of is, um, I think most lawyers and most participants are pretty comfortable with it too. And I, I believe we've had um, 
you know, good results. Do you think it's more efficient for many of the types of matters that come before you? Well, let's just talk settlement conference. Do you think it's more efficient from a settlement conference perspective to have people in the room or via video on the computer? I think that depends on the type of case it is and the level of complexity and what is required for a settlement. If it's a very complicated case with heavy documentation, um, I think that those will still, you know, even after COVID, will still be um, in person. I'm thinking more and more that um, a lot of my settlement conferences after COVID will, I may start doing a number of them uh, virtually, especially the ones that, um, let's say, where the costs of travel and, you know, counsel, clients, staying overnight and everything else. I don't want those artificial costs to drive, you know, a settlement. I mean, obviously, as a practical matter, it often does, as you know. But, you know, I think on a structural level, it's not good to have those types of side issues affect the analysis. Did you do any video types of hearings or, or settlement conferences before this hit? And the reason I asked this question is when I was practicing, I, can, I was thought back of only one time I had a case in the Southern District of New York and we had a couple of hearings via video. And it was for that reason. So we didn't have to travel because we were here in Chicago and opposing counsel in New York. And then I started to think, well, you know, as a question for you, have you done video before this? Um, I had not done video uh, before this, but I, I believe that we are either have had in our district one or two initial appearance type of uh, hearings in criminal matters. For example, um, you know, our state is really big, you know, to drive from one corner to the other is, I don't know, eight hours or something like that. It's a long ways. And so for those initial appearances, I believe that maybe some of my colleagues have done that virtually. But for me personally, I had not. But I, the closest I've come to that is I did do a, um, do a hearing. It was a, um, a case on Okinawa and it related to some, you know, a criminal matter uh, that was uniquely not under the military's jurisdiction. I won't get into too much detail, but it's under the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, I believe is what, what it's called, or something similar to that. And for that, we had to set up a overseas um, audio conference uh, appearance from Okinawa to Minnesota. Do you think going to video... You know, we talked about efficiency, kind of a similar question. Let's just talk about your motion calendar call. Do you feel like you're able to handle more motions now than you, you could have before? I think those numbers are probably the same. I would think um, a lot of um, the motions, um, I could probably rule on a lot more motions than you know I do if it, if it were needed. But the real challenge is uh, on motions is even though I know what the ruling is, it's writing it up afterwards um, that, you know, there, I, we have, I have two clerks and, you know, they're working very hard on a whole slew of different types of um, motions and reports and recommendations and so on and so forth, um, so, social security cases and the like. So uh, a lot of the backlog is whenever we have to write like an like a formal order from a hearing, then it really slows down the process. That makes sense. And that you've got to do that regardless. Yeah. And so that, I think that as more of a factor in like what, how much we can schedule is virtual is um, virtual or in person. I think for the out of town hearings, obviously it's a, little, a lot easier, I think for 
lawyers and, part and part parties. And you, you mentioned this before, but I want to actually get into the details of it. How do you handle a document-intensive case? Like you mentioned the settlement conference, maybe it's a summary judgment motion. What do the lawyers have to do to, to make that work? <laughs> it sounds sort of silly, but indexing is very important. And exchanging documents is very important. And so, look, I don't expect everyone's going to agree on what's admissible or not, but at least they should have them available so that both sides can, you know, react to it. So I think one is just, you know, um, you know, organizing in that way. The other um, helpful thing is if parties are willing to identify yeah, be a little more specific on the issues they really want to focus on in their litigation. And so um, I think those uh, two, they're really related to preparation. I think those factors really help a lot. Just the familiarity with the file. In some ways, because it's virtual, you have to be much more precise. You know, you, you can't just flip through your box. You know, you got to know this is where I hit the button and this page. And how, how are you doing that? How are you sharing that? If, if I'm going to talk about exhibit XYZ, is it shared ahead of time? Presume everybody's got a copy ahead of time. Do you say, look at exhibit XYZ, or are you actually putting it on the screen? Video? Yeah, we, um, we share them in advance. In criminal cases, we staggered a little bit and, you know, try to come to an agreement on, you know, a time for which, who releases what exhibits and so forth and witness lists and so forth. But yeah, during the hearing, you know, I, I actually, one of the bits of advice I wanted to share is when you're having a complicated, you know, like a document intensive or a complicated hearing, just make sure you have a bigger, big enough screen so that you can actually still see parties and actually see the document. Because the reality is right now I'm on a laptop. It's probably 12 inches uh, diagonally maybe. And, you know, when people flash a document up there and if I have half the screen is, you know, on us, you can't really see it and you start leaning into it and it looks really goofy. So um, having, a, believe it or not, having a big enough screen, making sure your audio quality as, you know, we were prepping for this was a good reminder actually that audio quality is very important as is um, stability of the link, uh, the Wi-Fi. So if there's one thing that, that bothers you or what, what's the con? What's the biggest con you see with having to do your job via video? Yeah, let's just take uh, settlement conferences. You know, I have always believed that, you know, settlement conferences are a combination of, um, you know, art and science. And by that, I mean, obviously, we can look at the science part as, you know, people read all sorts of books, you know, getting to, yes, you know, the psychology of uh, negotiations and you know, um, night baseball, day baseball, this and that, and the other thing. We can get into that, you know, Nash equilibriums, you know, their ladders of preference, you know. Those are what I call the science of um, settlement. But a lot of it is art. And a lot of the art has to do with the interpersonal relationship and trust that is created between, let's say, a mediator and a party and the party's lawyers. I believe that the virtual setting does not put me in a position to be as effective from creating that level of trust that I think depends a lot on interpersonal EQ type of skills that are hard to convey in a digital setting. I saw, I saw that quote in your law.com article, which I will 
put a link to on the episode page for this, but that's what you said. And I think your quote was, as far as being able to get information from an analytical perspective, from the IQ perspective, I think video is excellent. From the EQ, the emotional quotient perspective, there's probably something left to be desired. Absolutely. Um, and where that translates is that before I used to, there are a number of cases that you go in and say, boy, this is going to be a real reach to try to settle it today. And you know, at the end of the day, it's settled. I'm having fewer of those sort of surprise successes uh, than I had before when I was live. I would say the ones that you know you think are going to settle or should settle or are probably going to settle, they're still settling, you know. Uh, but it's those uh, those reach ones that are more difficult. I think I'm having more, ch um, you know. Uh, trouble getting those done. Now they're still getting done. It's just at the end of the settlement conference might be, not be uh, get done. But you'd be surprised when we leave the seeds of thought in people, they'll get it done later. Because in the end, we only um, have about four to uh, four percent in a high year, maybe two percent in in some other years of cases that actually go to trial. So most of them go away. You kind of already touched on this in the criminal aspect, but I read some articles about the cons and they've, they've guised this as at some level as a due process concern, but that, that's not what I'm asking the question. I'm going to ask this question as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee at a confirmation. I'm asking you as a, as a judge there on the bench, what you're trying to do to accommodate these quote unquote cons. Like, you know, certain litigants may not have access to the internet. They may not have the tech sophistication. You mentioned the criminal, how you're accommodating the criminal cases there, but what about if there's a civil litigant that maybe doesn't have the internet connection or text. What is the court doing to accommodate that? Oh, them? that's a very uh, real, you know, scenario. Now, most of the time we've been able to accommodate. In fact, I think we've been able to accommodate. The closest I had was um, it was an indigent person. Um, it was a um, case of you know a, a, a lower value, and the person didn't really have reliable Wi-Fi, which you know sort of begs a question, you know. Um, given the future is digital, um, you know, what place does Wi-Fi have in the context of what, you know, uh, is available to every citizen in this country? Um, and so uh, in that, we there were some real concerns, but uh, they did have a phone that had some Wi-Fi capability. And in the end, we also had the fallback option. Had they not been able to get that together? Because I think they were... Um, their housing was very unstable. And at points in the litigation, I think they were actually in a homeless shelter. So there are some real questions as to whether they would be able to access Wi-Fi. They ended up being able to do that. But the fallback was we also had an attorney and their attorney's office was big enough to accommodate um, their clients coming into the office, it, literally in a separate room, and then they could just um, use their Wi-Fi. So both parties went to the attorney's office? Um, both sides? In that case, they ended up not needing to because the client's Wi-Fi ended up uh, working. But the fallback was you know, they would be able to get to the lawyer's office and just do it there. Though I think the, the preference of both plaintiff lawyer and the plaintiff in that case was to do it you know, in separate locations if possible. But I think that's a very practical solution because, you know, knock on wood, most people are going to be um, are going to be represented. And also, 
for our criminal uh, hearings, you know, we have these rooms that are set up for audio and video. If push came to shove, you know, because there aren't like a ton of cases where the civil litigants don't have access to Wi-Fi, we can use those criminal uh, rooms that are set up for audio and um, uh, visual uh, to handle that. And, you know, as I was reading these articles, too, it seemed to me that some of the concerns, which not unfounded and not, not they're, they're legitimate concerns, but it seems to me they're, as soon as people are able to get back in the courtroom, they're going to go away. It's not a, it's not going to be forever that lack of Wi-Fi is going to be a problem to getting your day in court. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those issues will um, go away. I suppose there still could be some access issues, but those wouldn't be any different than existed pre-COVID. And in fact, I think the experience of COVID, if anything, will probably provide more opportunities to make um, justice and access the courts a little easier. In other words, let's say COVID ends today, you know, thank the heavens. I think the learning that we've had from this experience says, you know, for people who don't have the ability to get to court, you know, people disabled, what have you, who live far, very far away, this provides uh, a lot of good opportunities and ideas for the future. And that's a good segue to one of the questions I have. What do you see we'll just talk about you personally. How do you see the future use of video going forward once people can get back in the courtroom and get in front of you? I intend to use um, virtual as much as I can. And uh, it, it will be, um, you know, hearings as well as for basic court functions. It'll be subject to what the district, if we have district-wide policies. But I uh, support the idea of having more remote work so that um, you know, my staff, uh, my clerks, my judicial assistant, that they can actually work from home on a number of days during the week. And you know, for those with um, kids, you know, it's a good option to have. I know that there's a downside, of course, to doing virtual work at home when you have young kids, but you know, it's nice to have that option. Let's say you have a sick child and you can't find daycare. I think this um, virtu- uh, this digital experience is going to just open more opportunities for that type of flexibility. I want to move on to some tips, things that you've seen and suggestions you'll give to litigants. But I forgot, there's we didn't mention one pro. The, the one positive we, we've failed to mention is you can wear shorts with the suit coat and the, yes. and the tie um, and still go to court. Yes, it's... Uh, as I said to you earlier in our communications as we were preparing for this uh, podcast that um, I changed out of my uh, plaids and I didn't realize, oh, I'm going to be on video too. So I put on uh, what I think is a relatively, you know, formal bow tie and jacket, you know. You look great. Uh, but I will, I will not show you, but I can, uh, I will admit that I have my sweatpants on underneath. As you should, as you should. But so that actually though, Wearing casual clothes is I read an article in this early on, and I think it was a judge in Florida, it's a New York Times article saying, look, even though you're on video and you're not physically in the courtroom, you're still in court. So where, and I think there was instances of people showing up without shirts on and stuff. So, you know, obviously be respectable, wear good clothing when you're going to a court hearing. But what else? What, what is the number one, you know, suggestion you have for attorneys and litigants preparing for a Zoom court hearing. Just because you're doing virtually and you could be doing at home, remember exactly what you said, that this is federal court. 
and that your focus should be on this hearing, this settlement conference, or whatever this meeting is that we have. And that should be your focus, just as if you had come to the courthouse. You can't go and, you know, do a side errand or work on something else when you're um, or when you're not active on the screen. I would say they, I think people have to realize, focus on what the task is today. Because I've found that when people don't do that, it's not as successful. For example, I can't tell, but I get a suspicion. Sometimes when I have people on a all-day settlement conference, that I think they're too distracted on a, a couple of the occasions I notice. I think they've uh, scheduled several other things to go on during the day. And that normally doesn't happen when you're in the courthouse and you're sitting in a conference room. I mean, you can still have access to Wi-Fi and stuff. It isn't the same that you know, you're just doing another project altogether at the same time. You mentioned uh, checking your tech ahead of time and the audio and the video. How often is it that the audio is bad, the video is bad? Is that a common common theme? Or No, I would say um, at the beginning it was very shaky, but the shakiness had more to do with the apps, the you know what apps people were comfortable with. For example, um, immediately after COVID started uh, and before our district went to uh, Zoom government, I actually um, had a number of hearings and settlement conferences where I basically set up my own Skype. And, you know, obviously we weren't going to, you know, have the most sensitive issues raised in those, you know, that setting. But, you know, for purposes of what we're doing, I felt uh, comfortable enough as well as the litigants and their attorneys to do Skype. So initially it was like just an uncertainty of what platform you would use, you know, Zoom, Microsoft, you know, some of the others. So I think that uh, provided some uncertainty. I think the Wi-Fi, people were just not, you know, checking their Wi-Fis. I don't know, but maybe people have upgraded the the speed of their Wi-Fi. But I've been having fewer um, problems with that as a general matter. I think, you know, the video and audio um, apps that we use is, again, very key, as I mentioned. And uh, some law firms like their own conference setup. I get a little nervous of that on that because then if you're the other side, you have no idea what's in the background, who can listen to what and what their, um, you know, that other law firm's uh, capabilities are. And so that... Uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? What do you, you don't know what's going on? Well, um, for example, if we're supposed to be in breakout rooms and I'm talking to plaintiffs, confidentially, if we're using defendant's app uh, set up from their office, you know, the plaintiffs don't know what the technical abilities of that app is from the defendant side and whether they have the ability to listen in. Now, I'd hope that people don't, but, you know, I always say we should have a system where it's verifiable, not just trust. Have you had that argument? Has someone come to you and said, Judge, I don't want to have this hearing on video because I can't see the witness there and there could be some funny business going on. And if you've had that argument, what's the response? How do you prevent against the funny oh, business? Oh, the funny business, yeah, the most we can do is admonish. Obviously, there's a lot of downside if they get busted doing something like that. I mean, it's going to be you know potential contempt, maybe even direct contempt. There could be a uh, reference to the um, ethics board, the licensing board. There are many sanctions that might be available depending on the context of the uh, situation. So there's a lot big downside that you know we can remind people of. 
I've had that concern mostly when people have been arguing about, do we want to go ahead with a key deposition or not? And there, for a long time, a lot of the litigants uh, were hesitant to do um, video depositions of the key witnesses because there was one, a concern that in a virtual setting, when you're asking a question of the of the witness, that you don't know if that side's counsel is right. you know, sort of hinting at answers. The funny business. And, the funny business. Yeah, the funny business. So that is probably number one in a deposition. Number two would probably be when you don't have someone sitting next to you, you feel a little more alone. I think that ability of a lawyer to reassure the clients that, hey, I got this. That is not there as much on a virtual setting. And I think that, you know, that's an important element of um, of the experience. I, I would think those two are, you know, factors that go into it. But at the same time, can we prevent, you know, that from happening? You know, the sort of hinting at answers or even giving answers. I don't know how we're going to bust people doing that. Um, all I can say is we admonish. And if we bust you doing it, man, you are in serious trouble. Yeah. And, you know, look, let's face it. You, there's, they're still kicking the client under the table. That exists in the real world when the video is not there. So it's, you know, <laughs> this is, that's not that different. Uh, or, or can we take a break? Exactly. Uh, there's a question pending. No. <laughs> yeah. um, back to tips. What else would you recommend? You know, the dry run is very important because no matter how uh, well everything's set up, I think you have to have the dry run. I think lighting, I don't know how my lighting is uh, right now. It's great. You know, basically I've got several lamps up there and um, I found a a lighting system. It's called AIXPI. It's a 10 inch um, ring light with a tripod and a stand and it's got a phone holder and it's fairly inexpensive. It's, it was about like 26 bucks or something like that. So on lighting, I think having that circular light in the background is actually really good. And also <laughs> makes you not look sort of evil. If you, you know, how if you have lights coming under you, you, you know, look like a you know, Halloween, um, you know, character. Uh, also, I think a uh, speaker I found, uh, there's some uh, really good speakers. Some of those speakers are pretty expensive, though. So I actually like very much this, um, forget what the name of a Sonison headset that we're using. I think uh, that's really nice. We were joking about clothing earlier. I think you'd have to dress appropriately. For example, I'm actually sitting in my uh, dining room. But I think, you know, because I'm doing this podcast, I thought, well, maybe I should show... Show, be a little more formal. Again, like uh, I said, I'm not that, judging. You're the judge. That's your job. You look great. Given that you're in a plaid shirt, <laughs> I can, I'll show you what my actual background is. All right, let's see. Yeah, because it looks like the courtroom now. Oh, that still looks great, though. Which, actually, that's, that leads me to another question. How often do you see backgrounds in the back of your mind going, whoa, why, why do they know what's behind them? Like, are, are, could, could there be improvement there? And if so, what do you suggest as far as that goes? Yeah, I, I think one of the weird things is we have people walking around in the backgrounds a lot. And um, if you're in a hearing, it's court. You know, maybe people shouldn't be walking around in shorts and a T-shirt in the background. Yeah, I haven't had too many. Well, I'll, I'll share one one situation. I was signing a warrant once and uh, the person swearing the warrant was lying on a bed. <laughs> 
Yeah. That was like the, the New York Times article I read. That was, it was stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. But that, that was very early on. I think people have actually really learned how to do it now. So I think those are very rare. We'll add that to the list, too, of suggestions when you're going to court. Get out of bed. That would be, yes. that would be a good one. So, yeah, I mean, you know, shirt, tie, jacket. And I, I think, uh, obviously, um, being a fairly, not soundproof, but, you know, sound-sensitive environment. So, for example, that I don't know if it's apocryphal or now, a, a very important court hearing where you could hear a toilet flush in the background. I don't know if that's an apocryphal story or that's real. I'm sure, I'm sure it's happened. I'm sure it's happened. So yeah, check the link um, beforehand, uh, before the app, and uh, make sure you know the meeting passwords and numbers. I would say call your IS department, your technology people, and have them be available and on hand should there be a um, uh, problem. I would say, um, you know, again, going back to the exhibits, you know, you got to really be even more on top of your file than you normally are so that you can go right to the... Um, document that you want. We talked about screens. Um, oh, another aspect that's helpful in case you lose your Wi-Fi link, it's important for, you know, people to have, you know, phone numbers and other systems of communication. That I think is something that, you know, people should remember. So before all my hearings and, you know, conferences, settlement conferences, we'll get cell phone numbers from the, uh, from the lawyers. And then the lawyers are responsible for making sure that they can contact everyone on their side. Great. Anything else to add to the list? No, other than I'm going back to Wi-Fi as, as number one. I think without Wi-Fi, we cannot make real this concept of, making access to justice real and fair and equal for everybody. And I think, um, you know, in light of the tumultuous, you know, situation in this country, I think the idea of like fair and equal access for everybody is vital. I think Wi-Fi is actually a very important element of that focus on equality for everybody. And like you say, it's more evident now than it ever has been. So, right. Well, Judge, I appreciate your time. Thanks again. Chad, thank you very much, and I'm honored to be on this podcast. Well, that's another show in the books. We appreciate you listening. So if you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, too. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.